0: First uh, scripture reading from today comes from Matthew chapter 3. I will be reading verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the regions about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? "...bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the roots of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry." He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Our uh, next uh, passage uh, comes from 1 Corinthians 13 and I will be reading verses four through 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part that I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And our sermon text from today comes from Malachi. Uh, Two separate passages here. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. I will be swift witnesses against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So for six weeks now, we have been studying the book of Malachi, and today we will conclude our series. However, today's sermon is also the first sermon of Advent. And like Advent ourselves, our passage today serves as both an end and a beginning. Uh, Malachi is the last book of the Protestant Old Testament. Uh, And it ends on this note of hope that Matthew picks up. Advent both introduces Christ and a new kingdom that is born in a manger in Bethlehem, but it also represents the end of an old world. Existing in between, Advent continues to point to something new that has been inaugurated but has not yet been consummated, the already, the not yet. And traditionally, the the theme of the first week of Advent is promise and hope. Promise and hope, too, look back to a world of possibilities given in the past and point toward its concrete fulfillment ahead. Again, we have this anticipation of the ending of an era and the dawning of the new. Today's sermon is going to center around this person, John the Baptist, He's a completely enigmatic figure. He's out of place in both the Old Testament and the New. John is both the last of the prophets and the first herald of the New Age. And perhaps that is why John is so representative of this season of Advent. Both exist on a boundary, a threshold, neither at home in one place or the other. And our sermon today, like Advent, begins in the dark. Uh, most of you know, my, my job necessarily in, uh, involves me spending a lot of time in a dark room. And that's why winter is really hard for me. I, I dread the end of daylight savings time and the shortening of the days. I hate leaving work with the sun already set. I become lit, listless and depressed, and I probably have seasonal affective disorder. It is this world of cold and darkness that we all are familiar with, in which Advent begins. Now if we look at our sermon text, we read in the last verse of chapter 2 that the Lord has become weary with his people. His people only see cold and darkness, no hope. They live their lives without joy or hope because there is no justice. In a world without justice, only the few wealthy and powerful to defend themselves prosper. Morality and concern for others becomes more of a luxury. People seldom become virtuous on their own in such a place. More often than not, we only see depravity grow. And it is against this background that the people long for a savior. Something to break out of this darkness that they find themselves trapped. The people hope for someone who will ensure that the rules are enforced, that lives and property are respected for the weak as well as the strong. And this is the problem that powers and empire promise to solve, but all too often come up empty. For the Judeans who Malachi is speaking to, the Savior should be God, and yet the people only find silence and inaction. They ask, where is the God of justice? As the Judeans experience the world, it seems as though God prefers evil to good, a dark, bleak world indeed. Yet it is here in the midst of this darkness and despair, as is the season of Advent, that God powerfully enters the story. Malachi 3.1 tells us that the Lord whom he will seek will suddenly come to his temple. Uh, you also heard that in our first hymn today. Our first hymn, the last verse, uh, ha- contains these words. And this is a remarkable statement because it means that the presence of God is coming back. And that's a big deal. It's a big deal to these Judeans Malachi is writing to. Because you see, way back after the Hebrews were freed from Pharaoh and Exodus, they built a tabernacle, a kind of mobile tent. And the book of Exodus ends with the glory of the Lord filling this tabernacle. God is dwelling in the midst of his people. What could be greater? Later, King Solomon builds a magnificent temple. And again, we read an account of the glory of the Lord Filling the temple. We know how the story goes. The temple is destroyed by the Babylonian army. The prophet Ezekiel actually recounts how the Spirit of the Lord left the temple and departed from Israel, leaving from the Mount of Olives. The presence of God was what made these people special, it was what was missing. When the temple was rebuilt and during the time of Haggai and Zechariah, and it led the old men who remembered the first temple to cry when they saw it. Now, here we have in Malachi God promising to come back. And the return of the world's true king would assure that justice was established, righting the wrongs, the Judeans, Saul around them. The people want justice, and Malachi is promising them just that. First would come the messenger who would prepare the way before God. At the time of Malachi, Israel and almost everywhere else in the ancient Near East was under the control of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire was the largest empire ever in existence up until this time in its history. One of the things that the Persians were really good at was organization. They developed an extensive road system, an effective communication na- network involving uh, horse uh, horse riding uh, messengers, uh, similar to the Pony Express back in the Old West. Certain royal messengers were given special status; they were they had the authority of the king, and their words were to be accepted just as the Persian king's own words. These messengers would be used to announce news. They might make demands on the territory for resources that the king needed, or they were used as instruments of diplomacy. Here, the messenger is to announce the visit of the king. Of course, this would be a big deal, and there would be many preparations needed to be made in advance of the king's royal procession as he visits the city. And it was the job of the messenger to ensure these preparations was made. Likely Malachi is borrowing here language from Isaiah 40, which is about the return of God to Jerusalem after the Babylonian conquests. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. Then an even ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. So it's no surprise that we find Mark constructing one of his famous Mark and sandwiches out of this passage from Malachi in Isaiah 40. And the point of the king's visit, though, is not simply his present. Uh, Malachi constructs a chiasm for us in the second half of verse 1. And the parallel of the Lord who comes to the temple is the messenger of the covenant. This suggests that the Lord's purpose in coming to the temple is in conjunction with the covenant. The covenant is has been a huge theme in Malachi. It's the very foundation of the relationship between the people and God. And the covenant was also the, the basis for those who committed wrongs to be judged and therefore suffer the curses of the covenant. Remember that covenants were essentially legal documents. And as such, there was a legal process for prosecuting covenant violations. Uh, think of it as a covenant lawsuit. The process uh, actually was, had a name, it was called a reave in Hebrew. And here's the way that lawsuit would have unfolded. If the vassal per, uh, failed to perform his obligations under the terms of the covenant, a messenger was sent to remind the vassal of his duties and to admonish him to fulfill the stipulations of the covenant. The vassal was also reminded of the curses that were to befall the vassal if he failed and broke his oath. The messenger preparing the way in Malachi is the last in the line of these covenant messengers with the final word given before the king came to declare war and execute the sanctions of the covenant. Judgment would come, and at last judgment would be executed. Malachi describes this judgment in terms of the purification of metals. Typically when metal is mined it doesn't occur in its own, in its pure form. The metal's mixed with an ore. And in order to separate the metal, it was heated, and the pure metal turned into liquid and poured out, leaving behind the heavier, worthless dross. So two points here about judgment. We typically think of judgment in negative terms. However, if you were one of these people that were suffering under the oppression, the people that are crying out to Malachi, then judgment is welcome. It is God's answer to the Judeans' concern that evil seems to be rewarded by God. A German suffering under Hitler's oppression or a black South African under apartheid would pray for judgment on their oppressors. It is we in our comfortable societies that are more bothered by judgment. Second, notice that judgment here is not about destruction. The refining metaphor makes it clear that the purpose is to create an improved, a purer place. Notice that the, sin, that the sins of judgment is directed against not just the ones we would think of as religious sins like sorcery or adultery and liars, but against people who cheat their workers. Again, we see the biblical trio we come across again and again of widows, orphans, and foreigners represent the marginalized and the powerless in society. God's judgment is directed not just against the sin from the Ten Commandments, but against those who sin against the community and fail to uphold the weak. Judgment for them would be very welcome indeed. In chapter four, Malachi returns to this theme of uh, the coming of the Lord. and fleshes out more of the details. Notice that in verse two, God's judgment is good news, allowing those who fear God to rise like the sun and leap like calves. And all of this is initiated by Elijah the messenger of chapter 3, 1, who comes before this great and awesome day of the Lord. The result is a society that is restored, where community and the family are made whole again. So the question is, why Elijah? If you know anything about Elijah, he appeared on the scene at a very dark day in the kingdom of Israel. Elijah directed his message mostly against the oppression of a powerful, particularly evil king named Ahab who abused his position of power. And so what Malachi wants to do here is remind his people that in their history, they can look back and see that in the darkest of nights, the light would fight back. And the problem for the people of Malachi day was that God appeared silent. The promises that they clung to went unfulfilled. Truly, most of our Bible itself ends on this note. After Malachi, there is going to be silence and darkness for four to five hundred years. In many ways, the story of the Old Testament is promises unfulfilled. Genesis ends with Abraham's family in Egypt. The only part of the promised land they possess is their ancestral grave. The Torah ends with the people just outside the promised land. Joshua ends with the land taken, but still significant portions occupied by hostile people. Judges end in despair with no king in Israel and everyone doing what is right under their own eyes. The people get a king, but the monarchy is corrupt, and the promises of david the promise of David and Solomon ends in despair. Eventually, the only hope that's left in the kingly line is a pathetic king Jehoiakim, who is in prison in Babylon And here is where the Hebrew Bible, which has a different order ends. The Jews returned with the promises of Zechariah and Haggai unfulfilled, living in a defeated, barely-functioning, rebuilt Jerusalem under the dominion of Persia. The Gospels end with work still to be done. Acts ends with Paul in prison. And Revelation ends with John exiled on Patmos, with Jesus again (coughs) promising to come soon. The time is dark. The nights are long. But there is always still the promise. Advent is upon us and it's here that john the baptist burst onto the world stage matthew purposely portrays him dressed like the description of elijah from second kings 1 8 all four of the evangelists in fact introduce their gospels with john he is the messenger of malachi and for those who know the script the way is being prepared and the next person to appear on the story is god himself luke knows this story In chapter 3 of Luke, Luke tells us that it's the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Pontius Pilate is governor, Herod is the tetrarch of Judea, and Herod's brother Philip is the tetrarch of the rest of Israel. Ananias and Caiaphas are the priests. These are the ones with the power. They are also not going to be the good guys of the story. Like King Ahab of Elijah's day, they are the oppressors. The wicked who prospered while God's people suffer. Amid this darkness, light is getting ready to shine. John tells us light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. This is good news for shepherds. For the corrupt priests like Ananias and Caiaphas, it is not. Malachi said the sons of Levi, the priest, would be purified. Mary knows the script too. She sings that the mighty will be brought down from their thrones and the rich will be sent away. John declares, the ax is laid to the roots of the trees and every tree that does not bear forth good fruit will be cut down. This is not the stuff of Christmas cards, but it should be because it's good news. Now, if we look at our advent wreath here today, we have this nice bespoke little, very proper Lutheran candle with its controlled flame for the first week of Advent. For John the Baptist, though, I don't know that that's very representative. This candle should be much bigger, more dramatic, and out of control. The best thing we could probably do to represent John the Baptist in a candle is maybe get Gabe and Miles and some lighter fluid and see what they can come up with. <laughs> that would be a candle worthy of john the baptist such an awe-consuming fire though is necessary to give us real hope that's the message that john gives us the valleys are being filled the mountains are being made low from now on those that repent those that reorient their lives to this new reality will have access to the king all of the old claims of privilege will have no meaning John, the messenger who prepares the way, says, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. God is able to make from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Privilege no matter matters. Birth no longer matters. The road has been made flat. We all have access now. What John has announced is the downward spiral of human history is being reversed. This is the beginning of the end. The Lord of the universe is returning to Jerusalem to reverse the course of the world history. God is on the move and God is creating a new humanity and you and I are part of it. What is born in Jerusalem is not a baby, but a king and a judge who comes to set the world to what it ought to be to answer the cries of all those oppressed and broken who have longed for an end to the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the innocent. Advent begins in the darkness. For John, it begins in the wilderness, but it's gonna end in light. When the glory of the Lord fills the earth like the waters cover the sea and with a new creation, from now on after Advent, from now on after the birth of Christ, the days become longer the night shorter, the darkness is lost, and you and I bear witness to this good news. And what's to come of this refinement that John announces? What is it that's such a, that is such a danger to the powerful, and yet joy to shepherds and to widows and orphans and foreigners? What is this new world that is being born in Bethlehem? What are the qualities of this world that challenge a Pose and confront the old, but rise like the sun with its healing wings in the new? Why does it burn and consume the Tiberias and Herods, but cause the righteous to leap like cats? Here, Paul tells us something of it in 1 Corinthians 13. Here, Paul is sharing his vision of this new world. Specifically, Paul is meditating on what is continuous between the old world and the new in order to provide an anchor for the Corinthians. Paul wants the Corinthians to know what to hold tightly to, that what are things will be purified from the refiner's fire, and what is dross that can be held loosely. Paul's answer is that it's love. Paul then goes on to define love in sweeping rhetoric. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. Insisting on its own ways, love which rejoices in truth and therefore believes all things, hopes all things, and endure hold all things. For Paul, when the axe is laid to the roots of the tree, when the winnowing fork clears the threshing floor, when the refiner's fire separates the pure substance from the ore, choose your metaphor, what never ends is faith, hope, and love. In other words, faith in God's leading to hope for the future as a result of God's love and resulting in love for others. Again, we see those twin insufferable principles of the love of God, the love of neighbor. Paul tells us now, we look through a glass darkly. Again, we're back in darkness, the darkness of Advent. But the darkness is receding. The light is winning. Paul also tells us, we will see face to face. God is coming back. His presence is returning Advent is upon us, dispelling the darkness. And after John the Baptist's great conflagration, what will remain is faith, hope, and love. Those three abide. This is the world to come. This is the world that is being announced by John the Baptist. This is the world that is being opened as all the hills are flattened and the valleys filled. It's a world of terror for the greedy and the powerful. Who oppress the hired worker and the widows and orphans and sojourners. But it's it's not good news for Ananias and Caiaphas and Philip and Herod and Tiberius. A world of faith, hope, and love is too much of a challenge to their wealth, their status, their power. However, for those who suffer, for the shepherds and for the rest of us, it is Christmas. The days are getting longer. The nights will get shorter. The cold will abate as the sun rises. The light has come, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And that is the hope of Advent.